uh, entitled God's Values and Grace Church. Um, every family has values. In our family, we have values like respect. We give grace to people in our family. We also have the freedom to be authentic and real. Another value we have is to laugh and have fun. And God has values for his family as well, the church. He's given us these values and standards to help us understand him and how to relate to one another, how to live. In fact, God has set values that are to be embedded in our heart and expressed in the life of his family. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at some of those values. And this morning, we're going to take a look at God's value of identity. There's lots to talk about in regards to identity in Scripture. So we're going to try to do our best to cover the broad strokes of what God says about our identity. Now, I have found that one of the tragedies in the church is Christians to not know who they are. Maybe you've heard, maybe you've even said this, that my identity is in Christ. And while that may be true of you, what does it really mean? And what does it really look like? The meaning and reality of that statement seems to be vague and practically hardly ever experienced or lived out. And so many times, even for the believer, the default identification that we come to gets told to us in terms of our name, our jobs, our possessions, or what other people know of us. And so today we see one of God's primary values for his church is that we have an identity that we've been given by him as part of his family to be lived out. That this identity that we've been given is his story for us. And so that's the title of the message, message this morning, Story Formed in Looking at Our Identity. So before we go to the scriptures this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Yeah, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us to have a day where we can come and be encouraged by other people, to be encouraged through uh, conversations. God, thank you for the songs that we have sung that help us rehearse your truths, that speak to our hearts, that prepare our hearts in many ways to receive your word by your spirit. So, God, we ask you now that you would find each of us in a position and a posture ready to receive from you. That by your Spirit, you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth the things that concern you and things that concern me. God, I pray, too, that not only do we hear those things and receive those things, but you remind us that you've empowered us by your Spirit to live out those truths. And we trust you with that. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord this morning and respond to him? In Jesus' name, amen.
As we begin to talk about identity, I want you to ponder a few questions. When you look at yourself in the mirror, or you take a selfie of yourself, and you look at it, what do you think about yourself? What names, adjectives, or labels do you apply to yourself? Are these labels based on things like gender or race or culture, occupation, physical attributes, personality, wealth, health? Where do you get your labels or adjectives about yourself? Where and when did you decide that those are the things that are going to describe you and be attached to you? Do you get them from situations or circumstances like where you work, your family? Do you apply names, adjectives, or labels to yourself from your past, your present, your future? Where do you find labels and adjectives to describe you? Is it based on accomplishments, what you've accumulated? Here's what I found to be true in me and with people I know. When most of us talk about our identity, what we're really talking about is our desire to be known, respected, valued, and to be loved. We begin asking the question, who am I? There is a, in that question a deep longing to be known and accepted and approved. How are others going to think of me? Are they going to love me? Are they going to affirm me, respect me? And so our identity becomes adjectives or labels with this interior longing to be accepted. Now in ancient times, especially in the Middle East, when they talked about identity, they phrased it and gave it this insight by the name you were given. A person's name summed up their essence, their value in the world, their personality, their purpose. And so when we talk about a person's name, especially in the Middle East, we were talking about who they really were. And so I want to talk about some of the names we give ourselves, but more importantly, the names that we get from God. Because I think if we start to understand what names are connected to us from God the longing inside ourselves will be fulfilled. The longing that we really seek. And so the first question I want to ask is this, and the point is, who is telling your story? Listen to Paul's words to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by human, any human authority. This is Paul talking. I don't even trust... My own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It is the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Now in this letter to the church at Corinth, Paul makes it clear that there are different voices that seek to evaluate us. And inside the word evaluate is this word value. 
that there are other voices that try to give us value, worth, significance. And there's two voices specifically that I mentioned, and the, first, and the two are others and ourselves. And I want to take a look at these two areas, these two voices. One of the ways we get named and described is through the voices of culture. And now we need to understand that when the culture tries to name us or describe us or, or label us, it is seeking from us to be a certain way to fit that label. Naming us and labeling us in a way that dictates what is valued. What we are to value because they value it. Tim Keller said this, Every culture, without our permission and without naming it as such, imposes an identity formation process on us, its members. That they seek to form us by the identities and the adjectives, names, and labels they place on us. Now, our individual identities uh, by our culture have been set with some, probably some common categories, like our gender, our race, our sexuality, our occupation, our industry class. Our education. Now think about the last time you had to fill out an application or you had to do a survey. What did they ask you about you? These categories. And we also know that these categories in our culture can have different weights placed on them. Our social status. How much money we make. Our education. Our occupation. This is how our culture lets us know what they value and what they would like for us to value, what it honors and what it rewards. Now, I understand that we as human beings have to use descriptive words to describe um, people. In fact, almost every Tuesday morning at our staff meeting, this happens. So many people have been coming to grace. It has been a wonderful thing to experience. But we can't remember everybody who comes. And so when we get in a staff meeting, we start talking about you. And describing you. We'll say things like, you remember, it's the tall one. Or we'll say things like, it's the one with that color hair. Or this or that. We all do that. We all have to do that because we all have, uh, we're all different. The caution I have is that sometimes, sometimes as we begin to describe people in our culture and in our daily lives, we can all of a sudden start moving subtly from descriptive words to placing value. Things like this. Oh, they're the smart one. She's the pretty one. Or they're the ones that live over there. Remember, they live over there. They drive that car, remember? Remember, he works for... Remember, she doesn't have a job. All of a sudden, these descriptive words can subtly begin to have weight and value 
that we begin to place on things and on people. And sometimes those descriptions can become an identification that is placed on us that we begin to feel like we have to live out. That we're committed to that identification that's been placed on us. And I'll give you an example of my own life. When I was in high school and when I was in college, I really was the life of the party. And I loved it. I would walk into a room and I would want to know every person in the room. And I would want every person in the room to know I was there. And I wanted to make sure everybody at the party, wherever I was, was having a good time. Because I was there. And this happened over and over. I would tell jokes. I would be funny. I would do whatever it took for somebody to feel good that they were there in my presence. This also transferred over to when I started doing youth ministry. I would walk into a high school, and I would try to connect with this kid. I would try to connect with that kid. I would go to this middle school thing, and I would go to that event. And I was all the time trying to make sure that people felt good because I was there. There were expectations that I began to start feeling as people looked at me when I came in. And they would start naming things and describing me with expectations that were placed because of how I was behaving and because of how I was identified. These descriptive or identification markers became a a self-fulfilling mandate that I felt like I had to live up to. Because it was very obvious that when I didn't live up to it, they would say to me, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting that way? And over the years, I have pulled back from that expectation because if I acted like I did in high school here, you would probably say, what's wrong with you? (laughs) But it happens. The descriptions and the labels and the names all of a sudden can become an identifying factor for us that we feel like we have to live out of and can get trapped in. And that's my point. The descriptions or definitions that get placed on us over and over again tell us what is valued about us and can become an identifying marker for us, telling us who we should be and how we are supposed to perform. And sometimes we need to stop and recognize that all of us have been named by our culture and the world's influencers. And ask ourselves, am I trying to live up to that? We actually see this few examples in Scripture where God has one pur- purpose for a person, and the culture comes along and names them a different name for another purpose. The first one I want to show you is from Genesis chapter 41:45. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zaphanath Paneah. Now, remember, Joseph is the first son of his mother, Rachel. And Rachel tried for a long time to give birth and finally gave birth to her son. So she names him Joseph. And Joseph's name means the Lord may add. May the Lord add and increase more children. His name 
was a reference of Rachel's hope in God. And then Pharaoh comes along and says, Nah, we're going to change your name from Joseph to Zephaniah, which means... Which means the revealer of secrets. So Pharaoh puts a name on Joseph for his own purposes. I need you to reveal my secrets. And that's what the culture seeks to do. Another example is from Daniel chapter 1. You know the story. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. There's four Jewish men given four Hebrew names, all referencing to God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has favor. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah, God has helped. That was their identity, their name. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes along and gives them Babylonian names, all having to do with what he wanted out of them. And when the new name was given to them, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, I'm not taking that name, what did they do? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Threw them in a fiery furnace to get rid of them. And that's what the culture does to us. The culture or world labels us either uh, for their gain or their loss and treats us accordingly. If we can't serve them, they discard us. If for their game, we are the best use for them. And if for their loss, they dispose of us with no, no energy, no wasted energy on us. John 10.10, 10, Jesus warns, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And that includes our identity. The culture wants to name and shape us to determine our purpose and our value and in society. And they can do this through flattery and they can do this through insult. Flattery, there's this profession, uh, pressure to perform and insult, there's this pressure to change. Either way, the result is this. Too often, the name God has given us, like we see in the examples in Scripture, the name God has given us gets lost or forgotten under the pressures of the culture that's trying to name us. The culture wants to tell a story about you. God says, I am the storyteller of your life. The world will never, ever be complete or correct when it comes to your story. Only I can do that, says God. So we need to ask ourselves, what has the culture or others named me? And does this name contradict the name God has given me? How is your world identifying you? Now Paul talks about two different voices that he heard in this culture. One was the voices of others, and the other is the voice of his own self. I don't even trust. Verse 3 I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. 
Paul recognizes that there are names and labels and adjectives and descriptions that the culture is going to put on you, but there's also these voices inside our head that try to tell us who we are as well. And many times our judgment of our own identity can't be trusted. The labels and names and adjectives and description we give ourselves as flawed, no matter how we think of ourselves. If we think of ourselves as worthless, or if we think of ourselves as the great, it's flawed. If it's only me. And Paul says, I don't even trust my own judgment on this. Paul Tripp uses this illustration in his book, Dangerous Calling. He says this, stop looking at yourself in carnival mirrors. How many of you have been to the carnival where you go to that mirror and all of a sudden you're like this short, squatty dude? Or you get to the next mirror and you're like this tall, lanky guy? He goes on to say this, carnival mirrors give us a distortion of who we really are and they are everywhere we look. We all want to know who we are, who we really are, what really motivates us, what really gives us a sense of deep satisfaction and joy and purpose. And what does the culture say? Find yourself. If you're a parent of like a college student, maybe you've heard that phrase before, I just need to go find myself. What does that mean? One author said this, Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he points, appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make him make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. We not only hear the voices of our culture and society, we also hear these voices of ourselves. And, and our 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 culture is saying, be true to yourself. Just be, be true to yourself. You do you. And the problem is, we don't know who we are. And, and here's the progression. Here, here's the process. What we're supposed to do is look inside ourselves in the midst of all this history and expectations and pain and shame and guilt and anxiety and confusions and praises and accolades. And in the midst of all that, we're supposed to find ourselves. And then we're supposed to bring that self to light and to the public and just pray that it's accepted. This frail and fragile thing that we think we have found. God's going, there is a much better way. The problem continues over and over because we really don't embrace who we are because we are not good enough to figure out who we are on our own. In the midst of the culture's labels and even our own confusions, we need another voice to tell us who we are. And that is the voice of God. Have you ever thought to ask and sit with this question, what does God think about me? Who does he say that I am. That leads us to our second point, 
of allowing God to be our storyteller. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. And he says this, But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When's the last time you stopped to ask yourself, what does God think of me? Who does he say that I am? God has a lot to say about who you are. In fact, we're going to look at four incredible names briefly. Four labels or identity markers that God puts on us. Now, I'm going to give you a disclaimer. There are a lot of scripture that I'm getting ready to go through. Don't try to write down every verse. Write down the reference as fast as you can and come back to it. There are a lot. God names us first and begins to tell our story in the garden. The very beginning, Genesis 127, he calls us an image bearer. God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So at the foundational level, God's story for mankind was that mankind would imitate God and replicate God's image in the world. Now, if you ever have a question about your value, does this answer the question of value? That you are an image bearer of God. Do you have a purpose? Yes. Your purpose, my purpose as a believer in Jesus is to carry the image of God into the world. Listen to this, these next little bit, as if God himself is talking directly to you. My eyes saw your unformed substance. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know the number of hairs on your head and before a word is on your tongue, Matthew 10, 30. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, 14. You are more valuable than the sparrows, Matthew 10, 31. Over and over and over, God gives us attention to what he values in us. We are an image bearer. The next thing gives another name in the creation story he says, very good. Then God looked over at all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good, Genesis 1.31. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about God calling me very good, that is a big stretch. But it's not about me. It's about him. God determined what he created what he values by creating mankind, which includes me, as very good. And what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis? We want to name ourselves. We want to be God. That was Satan's temptation. You will be like God. And so from the very beginning... We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Again, God's words to us. You worship and serve created things rather than me, the creator. You have sinned and fallen short 
of my glory, Romans 3.23. Just as I said to Adam and Eve, the penalty of your sin is death, Romans 6.23. And in your sin, you are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. You turned aside from me, you became corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one, Psalm 14. What did our sin do? It broke, it broke our ability to bear the image of God. And that's why our hearts cry out now for Jesus to complete us, to make us perfect, to be the image for us, in us, and through us. That's why we love John 3, 16. In my great love I gave my son that all those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were reconciled back to God by the death of Jesus, Romans 5, 8. God says sin doesn't have the last word. My grace does, Romans 5, 20. Now everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, Romans 10, 13. You who have believed are born again, 1 Peter 1, 3. I have adopted you, Ephesians 1, 5. You are my children, heirs of God, 1 John 3, 2. You are no longer orphans. You belong to me, John 14, 18. And on and on it goes. Through Jesus, our identity has been restored. In salvation, Jesus puts his name, his label, his identity in us and on us, and his story becomes my story, his identity, my identity. Because of Jesus, you and I are a brand new Christian, brand new person. The old passed away, new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Sin no longer is our master, Romans 6, 11. We're finally free from the slave of sin and death, and there's no condemnation for us, Romans 8, 1. All our sins are forgiven, 1 John 1, 9. We are now righteous in God's sight with the very righteousness of Jesus, Romans 4, 5. We've been saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8. We've been justified by faith, Romans 5, 1. And no one is able to snatch you out of my hand, John 10, 29. That is who we are as believers. Because of Jesus, no one is able to shake, change, or edit who we are or whose we are. No one, not even our own selves. Because of Jesus... I am not who I once was. First Corinthians 6.11 But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And now when God looks at me, he sees Jesus, the perfect image bearer. God the Father also calls us his children. Romans 8, 16 and 17, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are the heirs of God's glory. I'm a child of God. But not only that, am I a child of God. I'm very good. I'm an image bearer. But this is the, this is the coolest thing ever. Jesus says that I am his friend. No longer I call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. Jesus is synonymous with friend. Is this the story I'm listening to? Am I letting God tell me my true story? Do I rehearse the truth that I am an image bearer of God, that I am very good because of Jesus, that I'm a child of God, that I'm a friend of Jesus? Whose story am I listening to? 
Philippians 3, Paul says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Isaiah 43, I have called you by name. You are mine. This is God talking. What significance? What does God telling our story look like? When God changes our identity, he changes our story. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, final point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. My identity equals praise of his glory. Having our identity secure in Jesus grants us freedom and confidence and joy to live like God intended us to live. I like what one author said, our identity in Christ disarms the pressure and powerful expectations in the world and in ourselves to perform. We've been given freedom, permission, and grace to live like Jesus. There was an author by the name of Brian Rosner who wrote a book, uh, I think it was in 2022. He wrote this, uh, How to Find Yourself While Looking Inward is Not the Answer. That was his thought, and, and it wasn't. this quote isn't from that book, but it's a quote he says that God gives our identity just like a parent who knows their child. As those who bear the family likeness, he calls us by name, remembers us constantly, and loves us unconditionally. Then Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of who you are. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think God thinks about you is going to determine how you live. If you see yourself as a recipient of God's unconditional love, then you will be able to unconditionally love others. If you don't think God has a purpose for your life, then you will do whatever the next best thing is. If you don't live within the story of God that God gives you, you will never live the full life that he's intended. I just want to close with a couple of things. The first is this. Our identity in Christ changes our lives. Number one, we no longer chase after the desires of culture or ourselves, but instead seek to bring God's name and glory in all areas of our life. Listen to this, what one author said. 
When our identity is in the eternal things of Christ, we will not be crushed by our failures and weaknesses, fall into pride from worldly success, or despair over disappointment or tragedy. We won't get lost seeking the attractive and empty things of the world that the world offers because Christ gives us a stable and eternal hope in a world of unstable unhopelessness. When we live out of our identity in Christ, there's no longer to fear the what if. Because we have a peace that God is sovereign. Number three, when we have our identity in Christ, we have no need to judge or compare ourselves to others when we seek to please Christ alone. Comparing ourselves and judging others can suck the joy right out of our lives. How many of you do Facebook, social media, uh, Instagram? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll see you on there. (laughs) Instagram and Facebook and those platforms, I'm not saying that they're bad in themselves, but basically it becomes a comparison game. Looking at your life, your story, as Instagram calls it, and then looking at mine. And there can be this subtle comparison, this subtle judging, that all of a sudden there's this longing that can get misplaced. This longing to have that life or this thing. And the longing is subtle in the sense that that Satan just subtly shifts it. That the longing is no longer for, for Jesus as strong as it is a longing to be fulfilled by this or that. Of what these people have or what they did. And there's an incredible time right now in the schools at young ages and high school and colleges where worry and anxiety, it it just continues to mount and to mount. And a lot of it surfaces back to being compared and judged and longing for something more that other people have. Because there's no peace of who they are. Pressure to perform is not from God. Seth read it earlier. God says, come to me. I am gentle. My burden is light. There's no pressure. We must seek to glorify Christ in the gifts and talents he's uniquely chosen for us and not get lost in the joy-sucking pursuit of being something God never created us to be. So I want to ask you this morning, first and foremost, have you been changed by Christ? If there's been a point in your life where you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you are a new person. Your identity has been forever, eternally changed. No longer are the the ideas and adjectives and descriptions of this world going to dictate who you are. That's why I love Psalm 62, one of my favorite passages out of all of Scripture. It's a reminder to me that God doesn't shift. God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and my honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is a refuge for us. You are who God says you are. 
As you came in this morning, I hopefully somebody handed you a sheet that says who I am in Christ. And this morning, I want to ask you to do something this week. During our staff meeting this past week, I asked all the staff to take out their phones and take a selfie of themselves and to look at it. And here's how it went. Yeah, not many people like to really look at themselves. And I asked them to look at it. And I want to ask you to look at yours this week. Take a selfie. And as you look at your selfie, I want you to read through this list and the scripture references of who you are in Christ. And parents, let me, let me encourage you. Go over this list with your kids. Because if there's ever a time that they need their identity secured in Christ, it's now. Let me pray for us. God, there's so much, so much that rides on this truth of our identity in you. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to know and embrace and live out who you say we are and what you call us to do and to be and to live. God, I pray this morning that those here who've never had their identity changed by Jesus this morning would embrace his work on the cross and immediately their identity is changed forever. We trust you with the results of this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.